0: Let your snacks be heard. Just go to frito to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. stakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Here's worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. This is Max Reaper of Royals Review. We figured with the baseball season suspended for the time being, we would put our regular podcast on hiatus and then focus instead on Royals history in a segment we like to call Rewind Yourself. In this series, we plan on looking on some of the overlooked moments in Royals' history, the good, the bad, and the ugly. In this episode, we will cover the Eduardo Viasis game from 2004. This is Rewind Yourself. We're where you want to be Baseball with the Royals If you want to be Having a great time If you want to be Loving the fun if you want to see all of these excitement this is the place where the wall want to be Yelling like crazy guys love to see. Come on out and join us. This is the place you want to be. We're where you want to be. Baseball with the Royals. Joining me for the first episode of Rewind Yourself is Brad Porter. And Brad has been covering Kansas City sports for 25 years as an anchor for Metro Sports and a host on 810 WHB. Brad, thanks so much for joining me today.
1: Absolutely. I appreciate it. We, we need something to talk about. <laughs> yeah, it seems like we've been leaning
0: heavily on the history stuff which i think i think maybe because we're all nostalgic about the times we could actually watch live sports i don't sure. know so
1: sure and even when you look back at some of the the ugly seasons it, you still find plenty of interesting stories
0: yeah in some ways i think it's almost fun more fun to kind of look back at the bad times just because it makes you maybe appreciate some of the good moments that would yes. that would follow afterwards so yes well the v- Eduardo vs game I think I was kind of liking it to if you took a young child learning to swim and then you just threw them into the deep end on the very first day uh, because it was it was kind of – at the time it seemed incredible that they would take a kid from A and just kind of throw him into Yankee Stadium, someone that most of the team had never heard of. And while it was just right. one meaningless game in New York, it kind of came to symbolize much of the ineptitude of the franchise at that time, it seemed.
1: Yeah, and it's uh – you know the day before you remember the week leading up to that game uh, you know they had the pitching probable come out every day and I can't remember why that slot opened up Um, but they would not put a name in for that day and so somebody I was working with at Metro Sports we were sitting next to each other and we're like who the heck are they going to call up and so we called our our source in the Royals Front Office and was like who are you going to call up we won't put it on the air just tell us who it is and they're like no we can't tell you and I was like Okay, that doesn't make sense. So we got out the minor league guide, and we looked at all the guys at AAA, because that would be your most obvious place, and we're like, well, no, those guys aren't ready yet, and some of them are, might be pretty good. I don't think they do that. And we got the double A, and we were thinking, okay, this sounds like a sacrificial lamb kind of game. Because I, if I remember right, the Yankees were really good that year.
0: Yep. Um, they are really good so every year, started, it seemed. <laughs> yes. Yeah,
1: And so we started going through the double-A roster, and I can't remember if it was me or the guy I was working with. One of us said, what about Eduardo Vieces? And we kind of looked at each other like, that's the only guy who has no career path to the major leagues that they would throw out there and just let him get his rear end kicked for, you know, a couple hours. So we called our source back at the Royals front office, and we are like, hey, is it Wario BSCs? And there was this moment of stunned silence on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> and the person we were talking to, I don't want to say who it is, he's still in uh, Major League Baseball, but it, after a, a long pause of five to ten seconds, he said, how did you come up with that name? And we were like, this is the only guy that makes sense. If you're just calling up somebody to throw away, you're not going to waste your A guys you might need, and you're not going to waste your top draft picks that are down in A. This guy has no real future so why not and then it was like he was like all right yes it's in World <laughs> <Cities."> <laughs> and sure enough what did he did he even make it two innings in that game
0: well we'll, we'll talk more about the game here in just a second but uh yeah, okay. it's, it's it's funny that you cracked the code and we're able to, to deduce uh, that see that's that's investigative journalism right there uh well it was the, it was the only thing that
1: made sense we're like you're not going to waste these other guys here's a guy that means nothing to the organization just go ahead and pull the trigger on
0: that Yeah. Well, before we get to the game, I think we should kind of lead up to it by talking about the state of where the Royals were in 2004. Uh, And going into that season, I feel like Royals fans probably had more hope than they'd had in maybe a decade of baseball. I mean, that was a really rough stretch of baseball until 2003 when they get off to this remarkable start. And surprisingly, they're in first place for much of the summer, only to collapse in September and kind of see the division to the Minnesota Twins. But still, They won 83 games that year, which was their best season in a decade uh, since '95, uh, and '94, I guess. And with they had kind of solid young players in their prime, like Joe Randa, Mike Sweeney, and of course superstar Carlos Beltran. I think, Mm. uh, you know, I thought that the team looked like they were kind of on the right path. I don't know. At the time, did you think that was a blip, or that they were kind of doing the right things that they needed to get back into contention?
1: Yeah, I, I think I was right there with your line of thinking because I had traveled with the team in 0-3, and we had um, at the All Star break we put out a um, uh, we put out a special called Halfway Home, basically saying, well, we're halfway to the division championship, we're gonna, you know, <laughs> kind of that kind of thing. Probably cursed it, but I think the lead was what six and a half, seven and a half games at one point, and then it just they got a race in about a week and a half, and so yeah, I went into that season, we, you know, we got you know we got some guys back. Uh, we added uh, a couple of other guys, um, Juan uh, Juan Gonzalez and Benito Santiago, and I didn't know them before they had come to the Royals. I didn't realize how uh, close to the end of their careers they were. But, um, yeah, you look at some of those names, you're like, okay, got some guys here. And, you know, you, Kevin Apier had come back, right, um, towards the end, and he was on his last legs. But, yeah, Jeremy Offelt, a lot of hope there. Um, I thought... George was going to be a, a really good pitcher, and he had a really long career after he left the Royals. Uh, Jimmy Gobble was up and coming. Zach Greinke was still on the team, and so you're looking at all that, and you're like, "How how did this go so wrong?" But yeah, I went into that opening day, and that was a terrific opening day, by the way. Yeah, we'll talk and about the I, opening opening
0: day in just a second, but but uh, yeah, it, it seemed like they had kind of the pieces in place, and it's, you know, the, I think the front office they were looking to kind of capitalize off the success of that season, but you know, this is the early years of the David glass era and you know, either he was unable or unwilling to invest more money in player payroll. That, that 2003 season, they actually had the second lowest payroll in baseball, about a quarter of what the Yankees were spending at that time. But it also seemed like, you know, a general manager, Alad Baird, he was also didn't want to kind of mess up the youth movement he was building. And so they weren't really, really willing to part with prospects to get veteran pieces and, and, you know, I think the something like the Allard Beard years, he was always kind of having to run the team with one hand behind his back, you know, because, yep. you know, we knew there was a big inequity in baseball between the top teams and the, and the bottom teams. Uh, but it also didn't seem like ownership made things any easier for him, kind of the way they, they kind of skimped on things and resources back in the day. Just, what do you remember about Allard Beard and the, the way the team was run back in those days?
1: Yeah, I remember many times, um, especially when the team was uh, training in Baseball City in Florida, because I don't. I don't think Allard was still with the team when they opened up um, in Surprise, Arizona. But I remember I had many conversations in in Allard's office, and he's a super good dude, and he's gone on to have a lot of success in the Red Sox front office. But I would sit in his office, and they'd have the big whiteboard with all the players in the organization, and then they had a whiteboard of players in other organizations that they were looking at and talking about. And I would just look up uh, at the names, and I would think, God, how how is this ever going to happen? I, you know, and, and none of these guys were bad guys. They're bad players uh, or bad people. They were just bad players. And a lot of them should never have been in the major leagues. But you just look at that board and when you walk in the office and think, how is he going to make something happen where this team doesn't lose 120 games? And I, I felt bad for him. But um, you know what? The guy put in the hard work. He put in a lot of hard work.
0: Yeah, he was kind of very much like a loyal soldier who was willing to you know, defend the club and try as best as he could. And, you know, in 2003, at least, they kind of found some magic and were able to make a run at it. And in the offseason after that year, it seemed like they tried to find some bargains on the free agent market. Uh, and they did find a few promising deals. They, they brought back third baseman Joe Randa on a kind of below-market one-year deal because Randa lived in Kansas City and he really loved uh, seemed to love playing for the Royals. They also brought back pitchers Brian Anderson and Curtis Laskanik, who they had acquired that summer as a, a midseason trade as part of the postseason push. They also acquired veteran slugger Matt Stairs and another bullpen arm Mm -hmm. and veteran Scott Sullivan. Uh, But their big splash, as you mentioned earlier, was, was signing all-star catcher Benito Santiago. And then a month later they signed former two-time MVP Juan Gonzalez. And as you say, they were both kind of at the end of the careers, but they, at the time they seemed like they still had a little bit, something left. San Diego was 39 years old, but he had been an all-star as recently as 2002. And he had hit that year behind Barry Bonds as part of a giants team that won the pennant that year, so he still seemed like a pretty mm-hmm. pretty solid player. He signed a two-year, $4.3 million deal with the Royals, saying that, uh, I got rumors Kansas City was interested in me, and I just wanted to go straight to the point because I know it's a very good team. Uh, that would turn out not to be the case, of course. <laughs> uh, a few weeks later, the Royals signed Juan Gonzalez to a one-year, $4.5 million deal. Gonzalez had been a, uh, a two-time home run champ, and he finished fifth in MVP, MVP voting, as recently as 2001 but he missed much of the next two seasons uh, with injuries but still he was a pretty solid hitter. In 2003 he had a 901 OPS and hit 24 home runs in just 82 games with the Rangers so kinda felt like if the Royals could keep him healthy they might have had a really major bargain. Uh, What do you remember about the the Juan Gon and Benito Santiago signings? I
1: guess the red flag on the signing initially which I didn't think about honestly at the time but only playing 82 games the year before and being his age, and the way some players were breaking down, um, because there were rumors about guys using, you know, um, illegal substances, and so you wondered if that was part of why he was breaking down. I, I never knew for sure if he did, but um, that era always has that suspicion hanging over players. And so when they when they made the name when they made the signing, I was like, okay, there's a guy with name value. He's been around. He's good for the young kids. I was all on board for that. And with Benito Santiago, we, we didn't have, we the Royals didn't have a ton in the catching department because I was looking through that 2004 roster and some of the guys who were catching on this team were like Kelly Stinnett, who was at the end of his career, and uh, Mike Tonus, who was one time thought of as a guy who could come up and be a backup at some point, but we didn't have any uh, depth in the catching department, and you get a frontline guy like that, if it's for one year, if it lasts for two years, you trade him off, fine, but yeah, that gave you it gave you a, a little optimism for sure
0: yeah, it seems like they once McFarlane left in the late 90s they kind of rotated through just a bunch of one-year stopgap guys like guys like Greg zahn and Brian Johnson and uh, they brought Brent Main back and so I think at the time it seemed like bringing Santiago would bring a little stability and like you say some depth to that position that they really hadn't had uh, so so that team you know looking at that 2014 they had Santiago catcher all-star Mike Sweeney and and Ken Harvey, who had a promising rookie season in two thousand three, they both kind of split mm-hmm. time at first base and DH a little bit. Uh, Tony Graffinino was signed to split time at second base with Jesse Reliford. You, had, I, you know, with
1: the Graffinino signing was probably underrated because I mm-hmm. thought I thought he was a really good clubhouse guy. I I really did.
0: And he ended up being a really versatile and, and really solid player, I think, for the Royals on a pretty good yeah. deal. Um, mm-hmm. And they had uh, at, at shortstop they had two thousand three uh, rookie of the year on Hel who. And at the time, it seemed like he had a really promising future. Uh, you had Randa at third, and then Aaron Guile began the season on left, although uh, a couple weeks into the season, they brought up David DeJesus, who was a prospect at the time, and he kind of finished out the season as a left fielder. And then, mm-hmm. and, and then the rest of the outfield had Carlos Beltran and, and Juan Gonzalez in the outfield. And mm-hmm. your starting rotation was Brian Anderson, Daryl May, Jeremy Offeld, Jimmy Gobble, and Kevin Apier. So pretty le- left-handed, heavy rotation, but on paper, that didn't seem like that bad of a team at the time, did it?
1: No, it didn't, and Brian Anderson was uh, another guy who was kind of towards the end. You were kind of hoping I uh, could milk another year or two and, and help this team out. Super good dude, by the way, um, and, and turned into a really good broadcaster. Um, but yeah, you look at those guys in Offeld, of course, we know that he didn't really find his niche until he became a, a closer for both what the Cincinnati Reds and the San Francisco Giants, he's got Two or three World Series rings, and he had a really long career and made a ton of money and kind of uh, rebuilt his career, especially after the way he was mishandled at Kansas City. Um, so, yeah, good stuff. And year I don't think he finished the season, if I remember right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, again, a guy who had been here before, and you thought he could help out. And Jimmy Gobble was another one of those young guys. And um, so yeah, I had I had some um, I had some hope with those guys. Like, okay, we at least got. Five and you know the rule in baseball is you got to have what eight or nine starters because mm-hmm. <laughs> you're going to need them. Um, so your, your starting five was pretty good, and your starting lineup was pretty good. But the depth, though, as I looked down the roster from that season, the depth was just uh, there was nothing there. None.
0: Yeah, it was paper thin, and which we'll find out here in just a minute. Is was going to be very detrimental for that for that uh, day in New York. Uh, you know, the the team was led, of course, by Tony Pena. Tony Pena uh, had won manager of the year in 2003 with their surprising run in just his second full season with the team. Uh, Tony was a former all-star catcher and a hugely popular figure in his native Dominican Republic. And I think many people at the time saw him as a good figure to kind of bridge the gap between the Latino players in the clubhouse and the non-Latino players. Of course, he was bilingual. Uh, and and he had a kind of an infectious enthusiasm, which I think a lot of people credited with the reason why the Royals exceeded expectations so much in 2003. You know... Tony seemed like one of the more colorful characters I think in Royals history. What what do you kind of remember about him, and is he one, is he one of the more uh, eccentric guys you've maybe covered in, in Kansas City sports?
1: So oh, very charismatic. I I love Tony, and I I still get along with him when he comes in with the Yankees. And I think he's still with the Yankees. Um, but whenever he come in, we we have a good laugh. And uh, we got off on what on what turned out to be a good foot, but could have been a bad foot. Um, when he had his introductory press conference, they just fired Tony Muser, and then they brought in Tony Pena. And so I had the first interview with Tony Pena after the formal press conference. And so I turned to the camera and we're live. And I said, we're standing here with new Royal manager Tony Muster And everybody in the in the press conference room turned and looked at me and I stopped and I said, <laughs> sorry, Tony Pena. And he, he let me off the hook 100%. He could have hammered me for that. But, you know, you go from one Tony to the next and you make a mistake. So we... We got along great, and I, I thought Tony was a, was a good guy, again, uh, much like Allard in a bad spot, um, and did the best he could with it, and some of the things he did were a little bit nuts, um, you know, showering with his uniform on at one point. <laughs> I think the, the frustration had gotten so high that he was out of ideas, and I would sit in his office, um, especially on road trips, and uh, managers at that time all the, had all these handwritten color-coded charts that they would make for themselves you know, players and what they want to do in different situations. And I, you know, sometimes you just stare at that, again, like Alex Whiteboard, Tony looking at his notes and you're like, well, what am I supposed to do today? I mean, okay. Daryl may gave up 12 runs in his last start. How long do I let him go this time around? Does it matter? Um, but Tony soldiered through that. And then of course, um, his decline got uh, ugly at the end of his uh, time with the Royals. And, um, I felt bad about it, especially the circumstances under which it happened. But uh, I thought Tony was a good guy and um, probably the right guy at that at that time. But he was not. There was never going to be enough time to get it turned around. There was never going to be enough players to get it turned around.
0: Yeah, and I have to imagine if if you're a newsman looking for something to write about or put on TV for that night, I think you you need you want more Tony Pena's in the world of baseball. I mean, he seems like a guy that at least give you something to kind of talk about for a day or two.
1: It's funny because uh, he would always have something funny to say. I never really saw him pissed off. Of course, I wasn't in the clubhouse after those losses before the, the doors opened to the media, so I'm sure he got upset with guys. But he always had something positive to say. And you mentioned that trade for Curtis Laskanek. So Laskanek gets here, and his first day, he's got a little uh, media gathering in the dugout. We're all, hand, you know, staying around with our cameras and microphones and tape the quarters. And Tony comes out, and he's trying to think of something to say. Because everybody looks to Tony like, you know he's going to say something, and he goes, and I'll, I'll do his accent. And this is not being offensive. This is just the way he <laughs> talked. He said, "He said, no need to panic. We got Lascanic," <laughs> and everybody busted their gut laughing. And, and Kurt was a Curtis was a good guy, and and I know he had some off the field issues later in life, but uh, it was yeah. Tony always had something funny, amusing, or interesting to say. I like the guy.
0: Well, like you mentioned, the the 2004 Royals did get off to a very good start, at least in the first game. They won their first game on opening day in dramatic fashion. The Chicago White Sox had a 7-3 lead going into the bottom of the ninth at Kauffman Stadium. New acquisition Benito Santiago doubled home a run to cut it to 7-4, and that put runners at second and third with a game-tying run at the plate in Tony Graffanino. Pena decided to bring in left-handed slugger Matt Stairs to pinch it against White Sox closer Billy Koch. But White Sox skipper Ozzie Guillen countered by bringing in left-handed reliever DeMazzo Marte. So to avoid the lefty-lefty matchup, Pena went deeper into his bench and pulled stairs in favor of light-hitting infielder Mendy Lopez. (laughs) Mendy had just four career home runs in 172 games up to that point. But in that situation, he was the right man to call up because he sent the the pitch over the wall to center uh, to tie the game. And two batters later, Carlos Beltron would win it with a walk-off game-winning home run.
1: Beltran at the plate with a count of two balls, two strikes. And so Marte brings it home. High drive,
0: left center, and deep. That goes Lee to the wall. Gone. The Royals win it. And the Royals won nine to seven. So it, at least on opening day, it seemed like the Royals had some of that 2003 magic left over, didn't they?
1: Yeah, and as that game wore on, I I didn't I don't think anybody thought they were gonna make a dramatic comeback, but uh in that situation of the uh consecutive pinch hitters, when they brought in Mendy Lopez in place of Matt because Matt could still launch it. I know they didn't like the matchup, but he could still launch it. And when they announced Mendy Lopez, I knew he was a switch hitter if I remember correctly. Um so they made the announcement and I, I was looking around the press box and I was like what the blank is going on down there? <laughs> Med- Mendy Lopez is coming in with a game on the line on opening day? And I'm sure the fans in the stadium probably had a similar thought, like, really? This guy? And the bo- And I watched his home run the other day on YouTube um, on what should have been opening day for 2020, and I watched that home run. It was an absolute bomb. Yeah. I mean, it was a – and it had height and distance, and it got out in a hurry, and you yeah, know, then the crowd's on its feet and going nuts. I'm like, okay, um, if we can figure out, you know, if the Royals can figure out how to get this to Beltron, things are going to get real interesting. <laughs> and then when Beltron obviously um, launched his and the crowd goes crazy, and I was like, okay, maybe this is the moment Carlos Beltron, because we all had an idea that he was going to get traded. Um, but I, at that moment, I was thinking, maybe he's having enough fun today and this season will be enough fun to where he'll say, no, I want to stay. And then, obviously, that didn't didn't work out quite that way.
0: <laughs> Was it wasn't That's quite great. enough?
1: <laughs> no, no, not at all.
0: <laughs> well, the Royals would have a successful home stand to begin the year. They went four and two, but unfortunately, on their first road trip, they lost six in a row. And at the end of the first month, they were already seven and thirteen. It looked like they were kind of buried already. And they were about to embark on a tough nine game road trip to face the Yankees, Blue Jays, and Red Sox. To make matters mm-hmm. worse, their rotation was hurting. Kevin Apier suffered an arm injury that would pretty much end his career. Daryl May suffered a groin injury that would cause him to miss a start. They had to bring in uh, Dennis Reyes to to make a spot start, but that left another opening in the rotation, and they would have to make that start in the vaunted Yankee Stadium. Assistant General Manager Muzzy Jackson would say, We need someone who can give us innings and give us innings in Yankee Stadium. That means we need mm-hmm. someone who can not only physically perform, but also mentally perform and give us a chance to win that ball game. Now, yeah. as you mentioned, uh the Royals had some options. One was Zach Granke, who was their top pitching prospect, and he was pitching well for Omaha, but he was also just twenty years old. He was only he'd only made a couple starts for Omaha after being uh after pitching the previous season in Wilmington and so I think the Royals were hesitant to call him up to the big, league, big leagues to make a start at Yankee Stadium of all places. The Royals also had uh, Chris Wilson and Jamie Wright at Triple A Omaha. They're both veteran pitchers who are capable of making mm-hmm. a spot start. But as you deduced, they decided instead to turn to Eduardo Vazquez. And <laughs> Eduardo Vazquez was a 24-year-old right-hander pitching in Double A for them at the time. He was from Venezuela. He'd actually been scouted by Jorge Posada Sr father of the, for, uh, the former All-Star Yankees catcher. He signed with the Rockies for $4,000, uh, and he kind of battled injuries early in his career, and the Rockies would ship him to the Royals in a trade in 2002 for veteran reliever Brian Recar, who had a 15.43 ERA at the time. Uh, Vucic was kind of a swing man who both started and relieved, and he was kind of old for each level in the minor leagues, but his development had kind of been stunted by, that, by the injuries in his career. But he had pitched pretty well in AA Wichita that year, uh, but only made two starts, both under uh, 60 pitches in both starts. And when his manager, who was Frank White at the time, uh, told him about the promotion, he literally could not believe it. And uh, general manager Albert Baird tried to reason it the best he could, saying he's a strike thrower, which is important against a team like the Yankees. So I guess when the, when the news finally did break to the media that Villases was making the start, what was kind of the general rea- reaction?
1: Uh the reaction was uh, kind of like Eduardo Visi's reaction. done. Uh, um, <laughs> yeah. even though um, the guy I worked with as I told you earlier we we figured out who it was. It was still like a, you know, Yankee Stadium. This guy hasn't you know hasn't done a whole lot in the minors, um, and a team like the Yankees at that time was just gonna it was gonna crush him. Um, there was no doubt about that. He was not gonna have some magical day where he comes out and goes, you know, seven and a third with, with 10 strikeouts against that lineup. It just, that wasn't going to happen. And I think the Royals expected it too, which is why they uh, threw him out there. And
0: uh, at the time, even manager Tony Pena would say, I don't know too much about this kid. Mike Sweeney was <laughs> equally confounded saying, quote, we did have some guys scratching their heads because we'd never met him. A lot of guys when he right. took the mound today didn't even know his first name. And VS right. himself told said that veteran players were actually openly hostile to him getting the start, telling Rustin Dodd in two thousand twelve, quote, Nobody called me like, Hey man, congratulations, welcome to the team. And it was tough because the impression when you uh impression you get when you move up is like nobody gives a bleep. So you're there on your own. Right. I don't know, did you get a chance ever get a chance to talk to VCS before a start?
1: Uh, I did not because she I was not on that road trip. I think Mick Schaefer was on that particular road trip. Um, so I was not there. And I could see I could see guys being hostile because that was, you know, it wasn't that far removed from the labor strife of, or of 1994 and 1995. And guys on that team who were a big part of the Players Association uh, were very protective of the guys, whether they were in the majors, whether they were in the minors coming up. And I can see where they could, you know, they might think, well, why aren't they calling up this guy? Why aren't they calling up that guy? This guy deserves some service time. This guy deserves a crack at it. This guy's never going to be anything for us, so why is he here? Uh, it's unfortunate that, that did happen that way and he has a bad memory of it, but um, it's just its one of those things where you're, you're protective of your guys and you want to you have a chance to win, and they clearly thought they were not going to have a chance to win with Eduardo on the on the mound.
0: Yeah, and he'd have to face a Yankees lineup that included sluggers like Alex Rodriguez, Jason Giambi, Gary Sheffield, and of course, the first batter he would face would be Hall of Fame shortstop Derek Jeter. And on just the second pitch of Eduardo Vieses' career, Jeter would single up the middle. Alex Rodriguez would also single, and Vieses, perhaps being nervous because of nerves pitching in Yankee Stadium, he tried to pick Jeter off second base and ends up throwing it away, allowing Jeter to advance and the strike thrower uh, who the Royals called up would end up blocking two hitters that first inning. The Yankees would send eight men to the plate, but uh, would only get two runs in the first. So, you know, he didn't act, you know, it's not like he got his brains beaten in the first inning. Uh, You know, after one inning, maybe you're thinking, you know, okay, there's some nerves there, but maybe he can keep us in the game for a couple innings.
1: Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Yeah. And so he showed a little bit of an ability to work out of trouble. Um, even though he put a ton of guys on base, I had, I didn't remember that that's how it unfolded. That he would walked that many guys and put that many guys on base, and it was only two runs. My my long term memory says he just went out and got his brains beat in. Yeah, but, yeah I didn't I had forgotten the first inning unfolded that way. Yeah. yeah,
0: it's interesting. I I had the exact same thought as I thought that he just went out there and got clobbered, but um, he actually settled down in the second. Uh, and in the third inning, he walked two more guys and then gave up a three-run home run to Ruben Sierra, I think which is kind of the big blow of the game. Uh, but they left him out there in the fourth as well. He was a- finally able to get Derek Jeter out. Jeter had hits in his first two at-bats off of him. So he gets Jeter out for the first out, but then gives up the sing- gives up a single to Bernie Williams. Uh, and at that point, Tony Pena, I think, finally says that's enough and brings in a reliever to, to come in and-, and clean things up. But his final line is not terrible it's you know he ends up going three and in third innings gives up six hits five runs allowed so his era 13.50 not great but it's also not just god-awful either he did walk the and right. didn't strike out anyone out um and so it's interesting yeah I, I think in my mind he just he had like a jimmy gobble you know in that 11 run performance kind of game or vin mazzaro in that famous game where he got left out to drive. oh boy yeah but uh oh. which we, we may end up doing episodes about one of those but but he didn't really he didn't really get clobbered. I mean, he did about what you would expect a guy to do coming up from AA, being asked to face this All Star lineup in Yankee Stadium.
1: Yeah, and like I said, he was never going to have a chance against those guys. When you read off that list of names, I mean, crying out loud, how many are Hall of Famers? Yeah, uh, or your Hall of mul- yeah. yeah, or, or multi All Stars, and uh, just an, an incredible lineup. And as you mentioned, with Abier getting hurt. And with uh, Daryl May getting hurt, going into New York with, you know, that then with your starting pitching, that just, that was never, that series was not going to end well.
0: The Royals would lose that game 12-4, to and that would just be one of many losses for the 2004 Royals. They would end up being a disaster, losing 104 games. Benito Santiago, the vaunted All-Star, would play in just 49 games due to injury. He would get traded to the Pirates at the end of the season. Juan Gonzalez, who was supposed to bring uh, much-needed power to the lineup, would play in just 33 games that year and would leave for Cleveland the next year where he got hurt in his very first at-bat and would never play in the Major Leagues again. Uh, as for Eduardo Vices, he was optioned back to AA after the start, and a few weeks later he actually went on waivers to make room for pitching prospect Zach Greinke. Uh, Villases would pitch in the White Sox organization for a year, but by 2006 he was already out of affiliated minor league baseball. A couple years later, he did become a pitching coach in the Rockies minor league organization for a few seasons, and he actually ended up uh, eventually being a pitcher manager in a fledgling baseball league in Switzerland before uh, then going to play in the Spanish baseball league. Uh, he doesn't seem too uh, bitter about the, the, the experience, but he does say, uh, he did tell Rustin Dodd, quote, reality is reality. If that's the way uh, it has to be remembered, I don't know if it would be the correct one, but I try to be remembered as a good player. He pauses for a second and says, hey, he says, I made my mark. So, you know, it is kind of unfair. VSC, you, you have to think, he's probably one of the, you know, 1% of the greatest baseball players of anyone that plays baseball. You know, like, just to make it to double A's is quite an accomplishment. Uh, but it unfortunately, kind of gets remembered as this guy that, that got, uh, was kind of, a, like you said, sacrificial lamb in Yankee Stadium. And, it you know, it's got to be a little bittersweet to say you made the big leagues but also kind of make it under those circumstances uh i don't do you have any any kind of last thoughts on edward of uh,
1: playing one game in the major leagues means he's played one more game of major league baseball than 99.9 percent of anybody who ever played the game so um it's easy it for you know people like us to say oh that guy stunk and that guy's terrible and we i'm guilty of it i do it all the time but you got to remember at least they made it up, you know, primary example, I'm I'm good friends with Les Norman and he played what, 52 games in the majors. Um but that's 52 games that a lot of people never got the chance to play. So I'm um I'm sympathetic to the fact that people remember him that way. Um but he did he did what the organization needed him to do for one day. And you know what? That probably makes him a pretty good dude.
0: Yeah. I think that's pretty well put. Brad, thanks so much for being on with me today and taking this walk down memory lane. Uh, Tell the people where they can find you on Twitter.
1: Uh, Pretty simple. I have to use my middle initial because apparently there's 300 Brad Porters out there. (laughs) So it's uh, at Brad K. Porter, B-R-A-D-K-P-O-R-T-E-R. And I usually try to get stuff up, just random thoughts every day, whether it's baseball or dumb dad jokes or uh, casual observations about life in general, nothing Nothing's all that funny right now, but we try to keep it lighthearted. I try to keep it lighthearted if I can. So, uh, and I appreciate all the uh, stuff you guys do at Royals Review, giving that, uh, putting out content, and giving us stuff to read and podcasts to listen to. And it's all um, really valuable when you literally have no sports right now. I think there was, <laughs> there, was there was there's some soccer league in I don't know, uh, Belarus or Kyrgyzstan or somewhere that is still playing, but there's there's nothing. And this is good stuff that you guys are doing to. Uh, to give people something to to read and listen to,
0: I appreciate it, and I appreciate you being on the show and and hopefully we get, we see you you know talking about sports on our radio or television before too long because we need some we need some actual sports content to be talking. About. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely,
1: at some point you're going to run out of replaying stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at least interesting stuff. So. Well, hey, I appreciate it. you. Yeah. I, I I appreciate you having me on so much, uh, Max. I it means a lot that you call me and ask me to do it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, that'll do it for Rewind Yourself. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Most of the time, we talk about tech in terms of a handful of gigantic companies, like Google, Meta, and Apple.